You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Today, Psalm 130, which begins out of the depths. I have cried to you, O Jehovah. Out of the depths I cried. Let's just read the psalm and then we'll comment about its place and then its contents. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. With him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So we have this lovely penitential and pilgrim psalm. This is a penitential psalm in the cry of distress at sin, crying out in a penitent fashion, crying out because of the sins that have come and seeking forgiveness. And so in, in the penitential Psalms, and it's interesting, from the, about the fourth century on, uh, there has been a marking out of certain Psalms as a special group, uh, eventually named the, the penitential Psalms. And this has had, these Psalms have had a special place in the life of the church uh, through the centuries. The, the first one that's grouped in this way is the sixth psalm, which begins thus, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath, but be gracious to me, O Lord. The 32nd psalm, which is familiar to all the readers of Romans 4, as a couple of lines from Psalm 32 are quoted there in the gospel way of salvation in Christ. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, it begins, whose sin is covered. See, notice that here we're asking in this psalm, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? That was verse 3 of Psalm 130. And back in chapter uh, Psalm 32, it was blessed is the man whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or count iniquity. And so there's a a lot of dealing, both in the old and the new both, of the counting of sin. Does God count that sin against you? God knows all the sins. He can count the sins against you. Uh, How does he not count the sins against you? How is that done in justice and righteousness? Because God in righteousness doesn't just wink at sin and make it go away. How is sin accounted for? What counts for it? We also have Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, 
Chasten me not in your burning anger. These psalms recognize there needs to be a penalty of sin. And man, we don't want to bear it, do we? Who wants to bear the penalty of sin? I don't think any can stand for that. Psalm 51, uh, most famous as the psalm associated with David and Bathsheba, his repentance after that. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Don't we know our sin? Don't we know that God knows our sin? How do we deal with that? Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry from help for help come to you. This one which we have now. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. And finally, Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no man living is righteous. See, we, we, we need to be counted as righteous, but we're not righteous. That's what the Psalms say. Our sin is ever before the Lord. And yet God deals with us. And God does forgive us. So as I said, these penitential psalms have been marked out as special for special consideration, special attention and reading in the church ever since the third or fourth century. In the Catholic Church, of course, we left so much of that behind with the Protestant Reformation, but the, the readings the priests were to do, the breviary, the daily readings required of them, uh, it had these penitential psalms, particularly in the season of Lent. Uh, the, the fellows who took uh, orders to go into various Catholic things, be monks and friars and the like, and get that funny haircut, the tonsure, which is a sign of submission. Before they got that funny haircut, they had to read all of these psalms. When the Protestant Reformation came along, these things were not left behind. These things were remembered. Luther famously called these the Pauline Psalms, the Psalms of Paul. Uh, maybe from Psalm 32 being quoted so generously in the book of Romans. But if anything, these psalms became more to the fore, not just for you know, the priests and those in orders to read, but for everybody to read and uh, as a chance to see how God's people of the past dealt with a confession of guilt and uh, directing our trust in God. It said that this psalm particularly... Today we have Psalm 130. It said this was the favorite psalm of Augustine, of Calvin, of Bunyan, and of Wesley. Uh, that, 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 that's a lot of theological uh, heft there behind having this as a, as a favorite psalm. But it's not just theologians uh, who have these psalms. These psalms... We said we're not just penitential, but pilgrim. This is called, as you notice in the headings, for those of us who are visiting today and haven't been to some of the studies we've done in the Psalms lately, we note the heading, this is a psalm of ascents. In the King James, it'll call it a song of degree in the heading. These headings are older than the time of Jesus. Uh, these groupings and calling them these. 
uh, the, these are in the Septuagint. And so we, we take them as, as, uh, as authentic. We certainly, well, at a minimum, take them as very ancient. But these things called Psalms of Ascents, of which there's 15. It's Psalm 120 to 134. So a section there in the back of the book. A song of ascent. There's a little bit of um, uh, disagreement or variety of explanations to what the psalm of ascent means. What does it mean of ascent? Or the psalms of going up. There's some who think this is, these were the ones sung as the Levites would ascend and the priests would ascend the various steps of the altar. These songs were to be sung. There's others who think, and the majority opinion is, these are the songs that were sung as people went up to worship. I think it probably is more uh, people than priestly songs uh, because all of these songs, uh, with the exception of one of these songs of ascent, they're all pretty short. So we're only going to have eight verses to study today. I know you're wondering when we'll get to it, but we will. There's, uh, there's only eight verses. And most of these songs, they're, they're very short and they're, they're um, mostly very repetitive. And many of them have one key word, which is sort of repeated over and over. This one doesn't key word, but a lot of them do. And so it seems that that was especially suitable for public singing, uh, for people to sing along the way. And we think about in human history, uh, both ancient and modern, the importance of singing as people would gather in groups and, and travel. Uh, we've seen it uh, in uh, our history, the the importance of the, the singing that the marchers and the civil rights movement did. Uh, those songs united them and encouraged them and, and lifted their hearts. Uh, or uh, you know, in, in a totally different context, uh, how important were, were songs to the cowboys on the trail. Or even today when people get together in big groups at sporting events, don't, they, they often sing. They sing the songs of the team. And so uh, the song, singing to pass the hours, singing to encourage one another, uh, singing, uh, to uh, share in group interactions. These are, are common uh, things that, that people in large crowds would do as they went, especially, you know, today we go on a trip. What do we make sure everybody's got? A fully charged video device with headphones <laughs> so that uh, everybody can pass the time uh, with as minimal as interaction as possible with anybody else in the sealed container, I mean the car, until we get there. But in the ancient times when you traveled, how did you go? You were walking in groups. And what did, you, what did you do? Well, as they would go to Jerusalem, they would sing the songs of Zion. And so here they would sing this song. And I imagine especially poignant to think about this song as you're going to worship. This song about forgiveness. This song about troubles. We're in troubles, but we're heading to the place of worship. And what do we find when we get there? We find the forgiveness and provision of God. So uh, Psalm 130, we're going to take it, and I'll just put this all up to start, and you can keep score as to how far along we are. Eight verses, we'll put it in four parts. The crying, the thinking, the waiting, and the preaching. Now, the first one, the crying is pretty obvious. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. So this is the kind of insightful analysis for which uh, uh, you've come. That uh, uh, We're crying. But we're crying from the depths. 
Answer me. Help me. Uh, we think about others who cried uh, from the depths. Uh, Psalm 69. Save me, O God, when waters have threatened my life. Or the ESV, the English Standard, puts it so much more poetically. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I'm in this neck deep. I am drowning. Help me, Lord. I've sunk deep in the mire, and there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and a flood overwhelms me. That's Psalm 69. It sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I cried out in distress to my Lord, and he answered me. I cried out for help in the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. So the psalmist cries. Jonah cries. We should all cry out to God when we're in distress. Now, I know sometimes we discount the call made in distress. We see somebody else in distress, we go, oh, oh, now you're praying. Why weren't you doing that before? Well, of course you're praying now. Why wouldn't you? But we want God to hear those who call out in distress, right? And we want God to call out in our distress. And how many times does God answer when people do call? in distress. And of course, we think about ourselves in our life. In what distress do we most likely cry? Now, sometimes we have distress because we've got the bad news. And our family recently, uh, bad news from that doctor's call. Your dad has multiple tumors. Oh boy. Right? That's that distressing day. Or we get that call that, uh, you know, from uh, the police or the highway patrol, or we have the uh, policeman with a chaplain standing at the doorstep. Uh, those are bad days. Those are days of distress. We have other days of distress where we find bad news in the family. Or we find some disasters befallen us. But I, I think probably the distress that most tears at our soul and the time that we need most to cry to God in distress is when we're distressed and sinking in sin. When our sin comes upon us, when our knowledge and recognition of our sin, when we join that, that, that group, the, the 3 a.m. club, or the, maybe it was the 245 club, or maybe it's the 350, it's all of them, where the terrors of the night hit us and our conscience tells us, oh my, and how are we going to go? Or as we sing in our hymn, I was sinking deep in sin, Far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But, but the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. And so, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. And so, in, in whatever our distress, when we're in up to our necks, again, Psalm 69 in the ESV, make a call. Make a call. And here's what has It appeared made this author, this one who wrote this song, be in distress. He's thinking, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you mark all that debt, what if he remembered all the stuff I've ever done? What would your plea be? 
There's only one plea. Guilty. I was guilty. Yes, I'm guilty. Lord, don't take that to account, please. And so, even like this one of the Psalms, even the most righteous could not stand a full marking down of all their sins and misdeeds. God knows all my coveting, and he knows all your lust. And he knows the hatreds of every heart. And he knows, he knows all who are embittered against anyone. And all of the deepest shames that we catalog in our hearts and it call, is called to mind from time to time. These things which Satan recall, has us recall and use against us. We realize. Yeah, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in the depths. I'm in trouble. And so even those who can assert their righteousness. So in Psalm 7, we have this amazing statement from David. Psalm 7, and the heading says it's a psalm of David. David could say, the Lord judges the people, so vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that's in me. David says, judge me by my righteousness and integrity. But the same David says in Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness. For they have been of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgression. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your gracious sake, O Lord. So even the man who can say in one time, Lord, judge me by my righteousness and my integrity. He has to say in another psalm, Lord, let's not remember that stuff when I was young. Right? Or, continuing on in Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, it is great. Or Psalm 25, verse 18. Look upon my infliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. And so we have a man who is righteous and who the Holy Spirit and the inspired psalm could, uh, through him, declare his righteousness as an integrity, yet he still needs to say, Lord, please don't remember the sins of my youth. Please pardon all my great iniquity. And Lord, please forgive all my that where we stand so often today? When attacked by the unrighteous, could we say, Lord, judge between the righteous and the unrighteous here? But in another sense, in our, the deepest part of our conscience before God, don't we have to say, Lord, don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgression. Pardon all my iniquity, for it's great, and forgive all my sin. And yet we can do that we, we can say that with some confidence, and David could as well, because as it says here in verse 4, as he's continuing to think about this, he says, but there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. There's forgiveness with you. We think about all those people out there that are unforgiving. Once they got something on us, they're never going to let it go. But the Lord will forgive. Lord, what if the Lord did not let it go? What if he did mark it all down and remember but Lord, in you there is forgiveness. We think about this from Luke 18. We studied recently on 
our Wednesday night Bible study. There was a tax collector and a Pharisee who went to pray. The tax collector stood some distance away, not willing even to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, said to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, not the man who bragged about what he didn't do and boasted in what he did, but this man who humbly said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So there is this amazing forgiveness in God. What's one of the amazing things about it is God hears this prayer over and over and over again and still answers it. When we talk about Jesus' instruction to us to forgive a brother seven times and seven times seven times and 70 times seven times, and forgive the brother. And we go, but how many times? Well, as many times as God has forgiven the one who says, and me who says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And so because of that, it says that you may be feared. So we stand in awe of him for having done this. Here's another paraphrase of this psalm. It says, out of the depths I cry, O Lord. O Lord, please hear my call. Let your ears be attentive. I beg for mercy, Lord. If you mark down our offenses, O Lord, then who could stand? But you grant us forgiveness. Therefore, we stand in awe. We stand amazed in his presence, we say in another place. You know, there's a, when it comes to the fear of the Lord, there's a couple of fears. There's the phobia fear. There's the dread terror. That's what puts us in the depths. The dread terror of God knowing our sin. But also then, having come to know him and trust in his promise of forgiveness, the filial fear, the loving fear, the deep respect. And the appreciation when we think that he is seeking us in this state to receive and redeem us. And so as Newton said, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, but also grace my fears relieved. When we find out what God is doing, it, it, when we find out why he's doing it, when we find out our sin, we can be beside ourselves with fear. But that same fear also, or the same grace also relieves our fears so we can stand in awe. As Micah said, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will, lead, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. How did we begin this psalm? We were in the depths. Psalm 69, we're up to our necks in it. And in Micah, what ends up in the depths of the sea? The sin. He throws the sin there. He casts the sin to the depths. And he takes us out of it. So thinking of his place versus ours, his grace extending to all our sin, we know in Christ this was done for us, that his son, his beloved son, his holy son was sent to save a sinful me. Now what do we do? Well, we wait. 
We wait on the Lord. We're going to be impatient with the Holy One of Israel after he's been so patient to us. We're going to think that he owes us more or we don't deserve this or we don't deserve that. We deserve better. No, you don't. He shorted us somehow. He didn't bless us enough or he didn't help us quickly enough or well enough or thoroughly enough. No, no. we wait patiently. So, verse 5, waiting now. I wait for the Lord. See, if we think right, if we rightly appraise and apprehend what the Lord has done to us and in us and through us and for us, we'll wait a long time for Him. The people waited a long time for the Messiah. And we can wait a long time, patiently in faith, waiting for what God has promised. For as it says again, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In His word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. You know, the Lord, by our standard, is he's sometimes slow about things. That's not really a secret, is it? What did Peter say? The Lord's not slow about his promises, is some kind of slowness. Now, but we want things now, especially if it helps us, if it relieves us. We are impatient. The Lord is not. He is slow, thankfully, to anger. Numbers 14. And abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But yes, from our perspective, it appears oftentimes awful, awful, slow. But aren't we glad that it does? Because we regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. But he's promised it, Titus 1, and he cannot lie. And so we sing, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Again, as this psalm says, in his word do I hope. He's promised it and he will yet deliver it. So because we're thinking right about sin and we're thinking right about the Lord, we can patiently wait for what God has promised But oh, are we still not but anxiously waiting? And we are so glad when it appears. It says we are waiting more than the watchman for the morning. Think about those poor guys on the overnight shift. All the hidden dangers of the night. All the things that go bump in the night. The long hours of expectation. The weariness of the body trying to stay awake. But what happens if you're on watch and you go to sleep? No, you got to stay awake. Time for another cup of coffee. Time for another walk around the perimeter. Time for another word with a fellow watchman if someone is there watching with you. Time, time, time waiting. But then comes the dawn. And what happens to us if we've been up all night and the dawn comes? Why do we have this renewed burst of energy? And why do these watchmen, they have their relief? Light has come. The dawn has appeared. And so we wait for the great light of God's dawn too. Appear, as Peter said, that morning star which dawns brightly in our hearts, or the new day with all the good things in it. From Lamentation 3, from the poetry of the old King James, it is the Lord's mercies, by the Lord's mercies, that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. 
His compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. And so now comes this dawn of light to us. We as Christians particularly think of this as the dawn of light in Christ. We think about how long Israel waited for that. And we having received and enjoying all the blessings of Christ day by day, that we would get impatient and think, well, we're not yet blessed enough. No, we need more than this. No. These things have come fully in Christ. As we sing light and light to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And so now, let's tell somebody. We thought about it. We're waiting on it. But now as we wait on it in hope and faith, let's tell somebody. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So let's tell everybody. Let's sing this song together as we go. For with the Lord there's loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. They look for this as future hope. He will redeem. We look at this this as redemption past. He has redeemed. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God. And so he's come, and we go tell it. We go, well, we sing, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Tell it, because we've received it. 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, right? What was this? Verse 3, if he would count iniquity, who could stand? Well, in Christ, because of Christ, he's not counting those iniquities. So now go tell it, and he's committed us. To this word of reconciliation. If we could tell people how to get out of the depths. If we could tell people how to come to life and light. Why wouldn't we? Our job is just to tell it having already received it. We're standing in the light. We're standing on solid ground. We are not in the dark. We are not in the depths. And there's a brother. There, there's a friend. There's a neighbor. In darkness and depth surrounded. And what do we need to do? Friend. Let me tell you about the Lord. The hope we have in his loving kindness and his abundant redemption to redeem and forgive all of his iniquities. As I said, this was a song the people sang. Uh, in the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that uh, as people were coming out of Catholicism, they realized we need something to sing. And so much of the Catholic church music was unsuitable for congregational singing. And so in the Reformation at Geneva, they largely sang the Psalms. This would be one of them. In other parts of the Reformation, they wrote new songs. And Luther, he wrote a whole bunch of hymns. We sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's maybe his most famous hymn. But Luther, and we'll leave with this, Luther wrote a paraphrase, an amplification of this psalm as a hymn to sing in the churches. And I just want to read the first and last verses. This is a paraphrase and amplification of this text set for congregational singing. From the depths of woe, I raise to thee the voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark our secret sins and misdeeds dark, oh, who shall stand before thee? And the last verse, though great our sin and sore our woes, 
His grace, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. And so, if the Lord would mark iniquity, who could stand? But the Lord on our behalf, through Jesus Christ, as it says in Isaiah, counting our trespasses against him and falling upon him, the stroke that was due for all the people, these sins are forgiven and they are not marked and they are not counted And as the psalmist said in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And so there we can be lifted from the depths. There we can find the place of rest and light and security and what has been done for us by God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at Mulvane Church. Dot com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.